Welcome to the encore of episode 31 of On the Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On the Schmooze, the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders. Now here's your host, Robbie Samuels. I heard back from dozens of readers that last week's email hit too close for comfort. Everyone had a story to share about a failed launch that left them feeling like a failure. One reader said, no one ever talks about failed launches, so I didn't have anyone to process this with. In hindsight, it makes sense that creating a program without input from likely prospects isn't our best option. Why then is it such a familiar experience? When you're an expert, it seems incredibly obvious to you what the problem is and how to solve that problem. Your likely prospects, though, are not experts. The way they see the problem is quite different, and that's where we go wrong. This isn't a new issue either, since Eugene Schwartz tackled this in his classic book, Breakthrough Advertising, back in 1966. I learned about a version of this concept first from Danny Inney, founder of Mercy, and then later another twist was added by Jason Van Orden, host of Internet Business Mastery Podcast. Both are well-known business strategists. Your likely prospects are at a different level of awareness than you. They are symptom aware, meaning they have small p problems that they'd like to resolve, but they have no sense that this is part of a bigger p problem. And that's why research calls are so helpful. Through research calls, you'll learn the exact problem language used by likely prospects and you'll be able to shift your marketing to meet them where they are. Let's say you had a rash in your arm that kept reappearing. You might be looking for some anti-itch cream to solve the itchiness you're experiencing. You come to me with that solution in mind, and I diagnose that the cause of your rash is poison ivy. Through a line of questions, I determine it's all over your backyard, which is why you keep experiencing this. I suggest that you call a guy I know who will bring a bulldozer over to raise your yard down to dirt so you're sure to get rid of all that poison ivy. Is that a solution you're ready to buy when you came to me for anti-itch cream? Probably not, as it feels incredibly disproportionate from what you were expecting the solution to be. We need to help likely prospects move from symptom aware to problem aware. Then they'll be more open to hearing about our solution. Your challenge this week to help you move from symptom aware to problem aware to solution aware to me aware to now aware, I'm facilitating a limited number of pop-up mastermind sessions this fall. The focus is how to successfully launch a new offer no matter the size of your email list. How? By assessing your network to discover likely prospects and likely referral partners and then discussing in the mastermind best practices for engaging with those connections. Each two-hour session will have a max of eight participants, fellow business owners who will share their questions and their experience. My plan is to run eight of these sessions between mid-September and mid-October. 32 of the 64 spots available were filled during the early access registration period. If you're interested, don't delay as the remaining spots will fill up fast. These sessions are not for everyone. To qualify, Participants must be an author, academic, speaker, coach, and or consultant who makes consistent business income selling products or services. The cost is $100 for a one-time, two-hour session. 
If this sounds like you and you'd like to be considered for an upcoming mastermind session, fill out the application at robbysamuels.com forward slash pop up app. That's robbysamuels.com forward slash P O P U P A P P. No later than September 15th. Yes, I'm talking to you. Sign up. Now, before we dive into this week's interview, whether you're thinking about launching an online course, group coaching program, or mastermind, you'll benefit from increasing your confidence and competence with online facilitation. To that end, I'm leading a one-time 90-minute online facilitation training on Wednesday, September 22nd. Register at robbysamuels.com forward slash 922 training. That's forward slash 922 training. This is the same training I provide for the speakers presenting at the events I produce. Recently, I was told it was very evident which speakers skipped my training because they were not as polished and professional. There are a limited number of spots available for this live training. Reserve your seat for $100 or pay only $49 if you're also signing up for the pop-up mastermind. Again, the link for the pop-up mastermind application is robbysamuels.com forward slash pop-up app. Now, on to this week's Encore interview. Today's guest has held a wide array of leadership positions, including presidential campaign spokeswoman, nonprofit executive director, award-winning journalist, documentary filmmaker, and she received a Master of Theological Studies from Harvard Divinity School. All of these experiences inform her work as a marketing strategy consultant, professional speaker, and frequent contributor to many publications, including Harvard Business Review, Time, and Entrepreneur. Recognized as a branding expert by the Associated Press, Fortune, and Inc. Magazine, she's the author of two books, Reinventing You and Stand Out. For Stand Out, she interviewed 50 of the world's top experts to understand how they developed powerful ideas and got recognized for them. I am pleased to share that I was one of the experts she interviewed. Stand Out was named the number one leadership book of 2015 by Inc. Magazine and was a Washington Post bestseller. She consults and speaks for a diverse range of clients, including Google, the World Bank, Ford Foundation, Yale University, and the National Park Service. She's also an adjunct professor of business administration at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business and a visiting professor for IE Business School in Madrid, Spain. She was recognized in Forbes as one of the 25 professional networking experts to watch in 2015, and is quoted frequently in the worldwide media, including NPR, the BBC, and MSNBC. Please join me in welcoming Dory Clark. Dory, thank you for joining me from your office in New York City. Hey, Robbie. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. So I want to just jump right in. I know my audience will be curious to hear a little bit more about you and your day-to-day, but since it's a podcast about leadership and building great networks, Will you tell me, what does leadership mean to you, and when did you realize you had the skills to lead? Well, ultimately, when it came to me understanding what what leadership meant to me, I started at, at an early age being really interested in politics. And I think in a lot of ways, that was my first love. I ultimately um, went pretty deeply into politics and became a spokesperson for Howard Dean during his presidential campaign. But when I was uh, a l- little kid in uh, 1984, I remember I had a clubhouse outside 
uh, and you know, it was this little kind of wooden shed, and I was able to decorate it any way I wanted. And so I turned it into my Walter Mondale clubhouse. <laughs> and uh, I had all these sort of crayons and cray paws, and I remember drawing pictures of the White House in it. And for some reason, uh, politics was just really exciting to me. And the idea of leadership and uh, the fact that that this was important, that this was uh, this was a, a kind of high stakes enterprise that affected everyone in the country really appealed to me. And so I was interested in it from an early age and ended up doing a lot of work in politics, um, both on the Dean campaign. I worked for Robert Reich, the former U.S. Labor Secretary, when he ran for governor of Massachusetts and consulted on a lot of other campaigns. And clearly, many of the same principles are at play in the business world as well. But I think politics was sort of my first introduction to that. So were you active in, in high school? Were you um, in student leadership in any, of any kind? I did do some student government. That was, that was always fun for me. I wasn't actually in high school very much because I, uh, I left after ninth grade to go to college early. But um, I, I did take on a lot of leadership roles in clubs and, uh, you know, student senate and all that. So similarly, then following into college, and then you also uh, continued on after that, going to Harvard Divinity School. Um, were you active in any uh, leadership roles in those capacities as well? What I became really interested in once I was in college was LGBT advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, I I had come out to myself when I was 13. And uh, that was really the the biggest driver for me to leave my little town in North Carolina and uh, get get my act together to ap- apply to you and be able to to be accepted at an early entrance program for college. Um, so I ended up at Mary Baldwin College in Virginia, which had uh, which had this program for high school girls to accelerate. And so I uh, I became pretty captivated with advocacy, and you know it t- it ties into my fascination with the world of politics. I I wanted to work on something that felt meaningful and important, and so. And Mary Baldwin, they, this was a fairly conservative uh, women's college, and they did not have any LGBT groups at the time. So my friends and I actually started the first one. Nice. Um, we, it was called, uh, you know, l- completely embarrassingly, uh, it was called Souls, Sisters Out Understanding and Loving Sisters. <laughs> <laughs> so pretty groovy, as you can as you can see. Um, but uh, nonetheless, it became a potent force on campus. And uh, a couple of years later, I transferred to Smith College, which of course had their uh, their group already. I became a board member there, and then even at Harvard Divinity School, they had uh, they had something called Gables which was the uh, LGBT group at uh, the Div School, and I served on the board of that. So that, that was where a lot of my leadership activities um, were directed from, from college and grad school. So how would you define leadership then? I think, I think that leadership, fundamentally for me, is just being aware that your actions have consequences for other people, and and therefore not taking them lightly. Um, I studied philosophy as an undergrad, and I took a whole semester on Immanuel Kant, which I have to say I didn't really enjoy. Wow. <laughs> but uh, but but one thing that I did 
was that, you know, I think the best thing that Kant did was he uh, created this framework, which I, I still think is pretty, pretty solid. And that was, that was, um, you know, his, his Kantian moral imperative, right? And so everybody's familiar with it, with the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But Kant had, I think, an even sharper view of morality. And he said that the way that you needed to look at an action was to say, okay, if I, if I take this action, what would happen if it became a universal moral law? What would the consequence be? And so, for instance, if you think it's great for you to have an affair, oh, sure, you know, it won't, it won't matter if it's just me having an affair. Well, what would happen if everyone had an affair? And clearly that would not really be good for civilization. And so you have to think about um, if, if your actions became the law of the land and to live according to that. So in a way you have to imagine that you have the power to have that law of the land. Like you have to, I guess, accept the impact that you have as, I mean, being a leader means people are following you and they are seeing what you're doing. And so that in, in effect, that could become the law of the land just by virtue of people wanting to see you as a role model. That's it's exactly very right. Very interesting. It's, it's, about, it's about embracing the concept of moral authority. And uh, I think you, you really nailed it. And so ultimately, um, you know, I, I think some people, um, you know, when I, when I think about the, the work that I do now, I mean, I'm not necessarily doing advocacy work day to day. Um, when I was in college, I thought maybe I'd become a professional activist, a prof- you know, working in nonprofits or doing LGBT stuff. And I didn't end up doing that. I mean, now, you know, I've been on boards and donate and things like that. But I don't necessarily feel like I have to be doing advocacy work all the time. Um, I think sometimes people think that there's, um, a, uh, you know, that business and advocacy operate on different poles and that, you know, one is more pure than the other. Um, I really don't see it that way because I actually try with, with everything that I do, you know, speaking of leadership, I feel like just by dint of being, uh, an out gay woman, which is not something that you see a lot in the, the world of business or business thinkers or business authors, I feel like I am still performing a useful role for for people, you know, for it's really, uh, people yeah. who are not gay to, to see that and for people who are to hopefully feel encouraged that they can do that. It's so interesting that you say that because similarly, I could have taken a path where I focused my energy working in advocacy and I did have a career working for an LGBT advocacy organization, but I always had other interests, particularly in cross-issue progressive organizing and movement building and teaching people how to create these effective and inclusive networking environments. So to be an out queer trans man doing that work feels like I'm also fulfilling, like you said, the work of advocacy because I'm interacting with people who are not used to having those conversations or meeting people that are not straight or not cisgender and so just by virtue of me being in the room with them and being an authority figure in the room with them, being someone that they value and they trust is building relationships. And I, I think you're right. That's part of the, the work we do as leaders is bring 
bring as much of ourselves as we can into the work that we do, I think that is a sign of leadership. Yeah, well, well put. I love it. So what do you find most rewarding about the work you're doing now? I think that for me, what is most rewarding is that I started out my consulting business working with organizations and helping them with, you know, their marketing strategies, their marketing plans. And that, you know, that's great. That's a a fun and interesting thing to do. Um, But since my books, Reinventing You and Stand Out, were released, those were books that were aimed primarily at individuals. And so over the past couple of years, I've begun working with more and more individuals, whether it's in coaching or I'm now uh, in the process of running my online course, which you are a part of. Um, I did my first mastermind day um, with a, a group of 11 uh, participants uh, here in New York uh, earlier this year um, where people were really working on their their business challenges and their business models. And so the work with individuals, I think, is particularly meaningful for me because it is helping people learn what I have learned about how to become a recognized expert, but hopefully doing it in a way that is accelerating the process for them so that they don't have to reinvent the wheel and they're able to uh, to get some some tips and strategies and shortcuts that make it a faster and better process for them to be able to get their best ideas out into the world. You know, as one of the people who has been benefiting of your counsel and your friendship for many years now, I, I, I'm grateful that not only are you good at doing the things that help you be recognized as an expert, but you're also exceptionally good at articulating and naming those so that we can get traction faster because not everyone who does knows knows what it is they did <laughs> and can therefore share it and repeat it um, but you're very good at breaking that down and I love that now individuals are able to work with you and experience that for themselves it's been a, a great little group I, you know I've been very active in the Facebook group that you created with it uh, with your course and um, quite a group of talented people that I've met so far so kudos to to you for taking that leap to into online courses. I know that that was a, a little bit of a stray from where you had started. Yeah, thank you. It's, uh, I, I think it, it's always important to keep stretching the boundaries a little bit and seeing also what your, what your audience wants. Um, for a while, I would just turn people down when they said, oh, do you do coaching? Do you do individual work? Um, but when I got enough requests, I realized, no, this is, you know, this is what uh, the the marketplace wants, and uh, it would be foolish to keep resisting it if this is what would be helpful for people. So, tell me a little bit about a challenge that you faced in the process of building your business, and and how you overcame that challenge. Well, there were a lot of different ones. Um, you know, one just at a very basic level was figuring out what my business model was going to be. Um, I think that a lot of times people assume that the reason that you have become successful is because you had this perfect plan in your head and then you executed it. But writing stand out, certainly I realize that that is very much the exception rather than the rule. Um, most often people do not have a brilliant plan in place from day one. You have to iterate to get to that plan. And so for me, when I first launched my business uh, 10 years ago in, in 2006, I actually thought that what I would do would be um, political consulting. 
um, that was sort of the first vision of it. Um, you I, must be very happy you've stepped out of that now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I, uh, I was not smart enough to predict our current chaos, but <laughs> if I had, I would have run screaming even faster. <laughs> but um, I, uh, I originally, you know, I, I had worked on political campaigns, and so I thought, oh, well, I know this world. I can do this. Uh, and I... You know, partly it was probably luck, partly it was uh, timing where I was in the political cycle, but I, I was not able to land political clients very rapidly. And what happened instead was that nonprofits and government agencies that I had uh, worked with in the past or where I knew people, they were the ones that reached out to me and said, oh, you know, are, are you free? Can we work with you? And so I, I said, yeah, sure. I was just starting my business, so I wasn't going to be turning down clients um, so I, I pretty quickly said, okay, well, I guess I'm not a political consultant. Maybe I'm a marketing consultant. Nice. And, uh, so I had to shift into that. And then another shift in my business model came because early on, really what I specialized in, you could say, was just based on stuff that I had done before and that I knew how to do. And that was mostly communications based. So I was doing things like, you know, writing press releases and trying to get people in the paper and I was, uh, you know, so I was pitching and publicity. I was uh, ghostwriting op-eds and trying to place them, all those typical kinds of things. And I realized that in a lot of ways that was a bit of a losing battle because 2006 was really right around the inflection point where two things were happening. One was the rise of social media, which was rendering some of these traditional practices a little bit obsolete. The other thing that was happening was that the way that traditional media had been done for you know the past 50 years or so was very much being disrupted economically. And so clients that if they had hired you five years before, you could have reasonably expected to get them uh, you know, a front page story in the in the metro section of the newspaper. You couldn't even get them in the newspaper anymore because the metro section had been cut by six pages and they went from, you know, whatever, 10 reporters to two reporters. Right. And your client would get mad at you because they say, well, why weren't we on the front page of the metro section? It's like, dude, there practically isn't a metro section anymore. <laughs> so I'm sorry. But, you know, of course, a client, a client wants a result. They don't want to hear an excuse, quote unquote. And so... Um, after having to just again and again try to explain this to people and recalibrate their expectations and let them know that I wasn't a f up, I, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, finally was just like, no, you know, I don't, I don't want to ha keep having disappointed people who are disappointed not because I'm screwing up, but they're disappointed because they have this vision of a shimmering mirage that no longer exists in the media landscape. I think and we so, all had a hard time probably adjusting. I mean, those that's a pretty heady time to be stepping out into this world on your own because the landscape was shifting so rapidly and the, and the tools used to communicate, people were still learning like best practices and websites were even, I mean, everything felt new. Um, media, like all, all the things we think of as new media was actually new in that time period. And you were sort of caught in the middle, it seems, between the best practices that you knew from your time as a journalist and now this new world, your clients were not ready for the new world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, um, I you know, shifted my model again and I 
shifted it away from press and communications and more into marketing and social media because I, I realized that was a place where since it was new, it was it was far easier to uh, to set client expectations accurately and be able to legitimately help people. Where did personal branding come in? Because that also has been a topic that you're you're quite known for. Yeah, so personal branding um, was something that that was not really a conscious decision for me to go into. Uh, it was really the result of my writing my book, Reinventing You, which you know was basically a personal branding book. Uh, but I, I did that not necessarily because I, I had, again, you know, a strategic insight that this was the direction that I wanted to go to, but instead because I very desperately wanted to write a book and reinventing you was the topic that it turned out that publishers were interested in. I had tried, um, several other topics, several other book proposals and had gotten them rebuffed. And it was only when I wrote a blog post in 2010 called How to Reinvent Your Personal Brand for Harvard Business Review that I managed to get the traction uh, first for that article and then for that blog post. And then they asked me to turn it into a full-fledged magazine article for the Harvard Business Review that I, I started to get inquiries from agents. And I realized it would be a possibility to turn that into a book. So I just went deep on it. And it was through that process that uh, I began to build up some credibility and expertise and people began coming to me for help with uh, executive coaching and things like that. So in other words, what you're saying is you're an overnight success. <laughs> That's right, basically. <laughs> 10 years in the making. <laughs> so for all of you out there who want to know how it works, it's it just it. That's it. Overnight. Just write the book. Um, you know, I, I actually am curious because I, I have known you and you are one of the most um, sharp and outstanding minds that I know. So I'm I'm wondering, you know, for a lot of folks, and I'm not sure if this applies to you or not, when you're striving for success, there's this sort of fear of being wrong or making mistakes or even of failing. What I'm curious about in that context is tell us something that you're not good at and and how you deal with that. Yeah. So things things that I am not good at. Um, <laughs> well, there's certainly a lot of uh, a lot of technical things that I am uh, that I'm not good at. I, I have, uh, I've, I've been in the process now of, um, filming videos for my online course and I, I am just really, I don't have a lot of technical aptitude, unfortunately. I mean, some people are like very kinesthetically gifted, you could say, and, uh, you know, they're the people that can figure out the Ikea instructions and, uh, you know, don't need to hire task rabbits and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but for me, um, I've been learning about, about the filming process because I, um, thank, thank goodness my wonderful friend Petra Kolber, uh, was kind enough to help me with filming some of the, the videos, uh, but some of them I've been doing myself. And I, I think ultimately they look very good. Um, but learning about the equipment and how they fit together, I've, I, you know, have had to kind of get tutorials from a lot of different people. And that's, that's been something that definitely has not come naturally to me, um, I, uh, I'm not necessarily the most, uh, mathematically inclined person, but I insist on still doing all my books and my bookkeeping, um, which, you know, is when we, when we talk about things that should be outsourced and, you know, the kinds of things that, that should be delegated, 
oftentimes people will immediately say, well, you know, look at the things that you don't like and the things you're not good at and get rid of them. And I think that, that often that's true. But when it comes to something like bookkeeping, even though it makes me miserable, even though I really hate it, I do find it important for me to do it because I feel like that's literally the pulse. That's literally the dashboard of my business. And it is essential for me to understand um, where, where this money is coming from and, you know, when, when I can expect it. And, you know, if people are behind on paying bills or, or things like that, those things are, are really important. And so if, if I, I feel like I'm not doing my job, if I am not on top of that. So you must have to outsource other things to make time then for the amount of time that you need to spend on the bookkeeping. Because, you know, like when we're, when we're really good at something, it's, it's quick and easy and fun even. But when it's a tedious task and we're not very good at it, it could feel like it takes forever. Like I, I actually like dabbling in website design. And, but when I went to design a new website, I knew I couldn't do it. Like not the way I wanted it to be done. Yeah. But I ended up finding someone I could collaborate with. So we met together every week for like two hours for five weeks. And I got to see him designing it while I was writing content and give that instant feedback. Mm. And that was a really, I learned a lot about the back end of WordPress because I, like you, I wanted to, to be in it. And now I'm able to manage the site on my own. But yes, there was a point at which <laughs> this timer money, right? Like when you come down to it and outsourcing for that kind of support, it's really smart. So um, that's, I actually was thinking also about um, just the amount of time and dedication it takes to to be successful. I mean, you put in incredible hours traveling. Whenever I talk to you, you're like in another continent. And I'm sure that, that that has sort of an impact on your life at work, but then it also has an impact on life outside of the office, quote unquote office. So what does self-care look like in this whirlwind career that you've created for yourself? Yeah, that's, that's a, a great, uh, a great question. I think that it, it definitely varies based on, um, based on where, where I am at different things in my life. Right now, I'm in a place where I've just adopted these two new kittens. And so I am trying to minimize the time that I'm spending on the road so that I can um, be back and be a be a good cat parent. <laughs> and uh, so even though this is a, a pretty fast trip, for instance, I just booked a, a trip out to San Francisco for a business meeting that I have to do. And so under other circumstances, I might extend the trip out and, you know, meet up with friends and have dinner engagements and things like that. And that would make it fun. And that would be a form of self care. Um, but but this time, you know, based on just having these these new kittens that I, I want to make sure I'm being there for and, uh, you know, that they're, they're comfortable in their new home. Um, in that case, even though it's a little less convenient, I'm making the trip as short as I, I possibly can. So I'm flying out, uh, you know, on a Thursday night and having the meeting on a Friday and then coming back early Saturday morning, something like that, um, so that it's, it's less time. And so it's a little uncomfortable, you know, on a, on a plane in the quick turnaround, but it's, it's better for me overall because the frame that I have is that I, I want to be home in New York. Um, but, you know, depending on the location too, um, I think a facet of self-care is just what is the overall quality of your life. And so 
Um, if I'm traveling somewhere that I've never been before, then I want to extend that time and be able to experience it and, and really, you know, be a tourist and make the most of it. So I've just booked some travel in November where I'm going to be speaking at conferences in Slovenia and Greece. And so I certainly intend to, uh, to take extra time and, and get to learn about those places and explore because I've, I've never had the opportunity to. Well, I'm hoping that you will share a photo or two of your kitties so you can put them in the show notes because they sound adorable and worth uh, running home to. And I, having that kind of grounding and home base is really important when you travel so much. So I'm glad that you have that home to come to um, because otherwise it's just a series of hotel rooms. Uh, I think as I got involved with the National Speakers Association and met more people who travel um, internationally and nationally for their speaking profession, at first it sounds so glamorous until you realize like, what you just described does not sound that fun. Getting on a plane, flying somewhere, doing the talk, turning around, flying back um, can be a pretty lonely existence. So is there something you do to, to maintain relationships that you've had all these years? Like you're very good at staying in touch with people. You and I have known each other quite a while. Is there something you're specifically doing to nurture those relationships that you've met through all your different careers and your different iterations of your business? Well, you know, I, I think um, one of the things that I like to do, certainly in New York, and I actually do this when I travel as well, and you have been a part of it, Robbie, is uh, I, I love to organize big dinner gatherings. And part, it, it's sort of a twofold benefit. Um, part of it is that I think it's just fun for people to go to, uh, to big big dinners where they're meeting lots of people. It's kind of high value for them because, you know, you're investing a couple of hours, but you're getting to meet eight or 10 really cool people. Um, but it also serves a networking benefit for me because I have a limited amount of time. And oftentimes there is a default in our culture to, oh, let's have coffee. That, you know, that's sort of the standard thing that people will suggest if they don't have a, you know, a compelling reason to do otherwise. And that's nice. But if I had coffee one-on-one -on -one with all of the people that wanted to, I would never have any time in my <laughs> schedule. You'd be over-caffeinated too. I would have so much caffeine in my <laughs> system. Yeah, that would be unhealthy. So instead, um, organizing dinner gatherings is, is a much better way to do it, I think, because I'm able to essentially do networking in bulk and uh, you know, s spend a few hours you know, one evening every couple of weeks and get to see tons of people, and also bring together uh, people from different facets of my life. That's really interesting. I actually had a guest on earlier um, who actually, when he travels, it was uh, Juan, when he travels, Juan Martinez, uh, he actually goes back to DC, for instance, where he had worked and lived for quite a while, and he'll do the same thing. He'll, he'll actually sort of organize a happy hour. So more informal than, than your dinners, which are you know exactly who's coming. He just sort of puts it out there. I'm going to be in town. So Friday night, this is where we're all going to meet. And he has people from all parts of his life show up. So when he travels to the West Coast, he does that. And it's just been a really great way for him to maintain those relationships as he's kind of traveling around. Um, because, you know, we're not always living, you know, within a half an hour drive of where we grew up. That's, that's not true for most of us, I think. Um, so where do you where do you find those intersections? And I, another guest actually uh, that I just interviewed, this hasn't aired yet, um, but Chris Clark Epstein talked about uh, finding the midpoint between her and another professional speaker, their hometowns, and making a point that if they spoke near that midpoint, 
they would meet up. And so she's made an effort to have that FaceTime throughout the year. Because I do think, you know, social media has its its benefits and I guess its limitations too about how you might maintain those relationships. Yeah, that's that's really nice. I love that idea. So is there something you would tell your younger self? This we're, we're getting towards the end of our time here, but this is a question I always find curious. If you had the opportunity to speak to yourself at, let's say, 25 years old, is there something in particular you'd encourage yourself to do to build a strong, supportive professional network? If we're talking specifically about building a, a strong professional network, um, I would say that one of the things that I was slow on the draw for was, uh, was really getting serious about building an email list. And uh, that's become something that's so important to me in my business now. I mean, I, I had I had an email list for years, and I knew that I should, but I, I just wasn't organized about uh, about doing it right and about growing it and about sending out messages consistently. And I, I just didn't really realize that there was a, an art and a science to it that I should have been reading up on and learning about. And uh, so I, I wish that I had done that earlier. I think that another thing that I made a concerted effort to do starting in 2008, but I wish I had done it even sooner, is I realized that if I wanted to grow my business, I would need to upgrade the people that I knew. And I, I don't mean upgrade in, you know, some kind of a, you know, a, a moral sense of, you know, pe- some people being better than others. But I, what I do mean is that I knew too many low level employees. And I didn't know, I didn't know people that could hire me for the kinds of projects that I wanted. And so I needed to be very deliberate about how to get myself in front of audiences that could buy and, and build relationships with people that could buy. And if, uh, if I wasn't going to do that, I would stay stuck in a lower echelon with low fees forever. And yeah. so I, I started investing in opportunities to go to conferences and to network mm. and to meet people um, so that I could really try to catapult myself into, into that, um, that circle. It's interesting because as I've joined various associations and gone to different conferences or even some online courses, I start to realize the people who are willing to, to invest in themselves by going to the conference or by paying for this you know, high, higher price tag uh, online course it's clear that they already are setting themselves to be the kind of people that I would probably be interested in getting to know because that investment they have in themselves and their ongoing growth and their career makes them a very intriguing. I, I want to know more about who they are and they're likely people I wouldn't have crossed paths with in another, another way. So I've started to realize that that's, that's a really key aspect of building my network as I continue my own business growth. Yeah, that's that's terrific. So here's my my sort of wrap up question for you. If we were to meet a year from now, and I know we'll talk between now and then, but let's say we're chatting a year from now, and you were telling me what a great year it has been, what accomplishments would we be celebrating? Well, if we're talking about at the end of 2017, um, one thing which is very much on the docket, uh, which I I hope you know, fingers crossed, will have happened by then is that my third book will have been released. Um, nice. It's going to be coming out from Harvard Business Review Press in probably September of 2017. Um, that's been something that has been 
a big focus for me this year. I did all the interviews earlier in the year. I spent the summer writing the first draft of it. And I'll probably spend the fall writing um, subsequent drafts after getting my feedback from my editor. So um, it's a pretty exhaustive process. Harvard Business Review Press uh, even sort of has the vestiges of an academic press. And so they even make your manuscript go through peer review, which is pretty hardcore. Wow. But uh, but that'll be a really good accomplishment to have that have that out of the way. And uh, along with it, I'll certainly be looking to expand my uh, my efforts with online courses and uh, perhaps will have completed or at least completed the pilot, but perhaps completed the first launch of my second online class, which uh, I'm hoping to do in conjunction with the release of that book. Well, I am looking forward to having the conversation with you about all of your accomplishments and, and tracking you online and also seeing you in person. Thank you again for joining us for this conversation, sharing your insights about leadership and networking. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Robbie. I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to be with you and, uh, and share, share some thoughts. And I'll also just mention briefly that if any of your listeners are interested in learning more about my work and about how to develop their own breakthrough ideas and share their expertise with the world. I have a free giveaway that they can access. It's a 42-page standout self-assessment workbook, and they can get it at doryclark.com, which is D-O-R-I-E-C-L-A-R-K.com slash Robbie. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that with my listeners. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dory. Such a pleasure to speak with her and learn about her leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something to put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for the encore of episode 31. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which were your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to follow for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance and look forward to connecting again next week. I'm interviewing another talent professional who's achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an awesome week. Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's On the Schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.